the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. When you get saved, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, your spirit becomes regenerated or redeemed. All right, the real essence of who you are is your spirit. Your spirit is what lives on after your body dies, after you experience death. The Bible teaches that your spirit will separate from your body and go to be with the Lord. Paul says it like this, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So your spirit is the real essence of who you are, your mind, will, and emotions, your spirit and your soul intertwined, housed within a physical body. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Nehemiah. While many of us don't bother to get wrapped up in the metaphysical aspects of the gospel, it's important we know some of the basics. Whether we think it's too mystical, taboo, or just plain weird, having some understanding can definitely help in our battle against sin. In today's message, Pastor Gary teaches us about the regeneration of our spirit versus the corruption of our flesh. In our study, we learn that one of the many reasons we face spiritual tension is due to the regeneration of our spirit, which is housed in a physical body. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in Nehemiah 3 for part one of today's message titled, Examining Our Gates, Spiritual Warfare. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you out today in the house of the Lord. You glad to be here? That wasn't very exciting. There you go. All right, all right, all right. Ne- okay, thank you. Thank you very much. I think that was just for me. Anyway, uh, Nehemiah 3 is where we're going to be today. Nehemiah 3. I'm going to ask you to also find another place in your Bible, Ephesians chapter 6. So if you have a bulletin handy or some other piece of paper or something, you can mark Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be starting in Nehemiah 3, and then the last half of the Bible study will be in Ephesians chapter 6. So if you could find that place as well. Nehemiah chapter 3 is where we will begin. We've been looking at uh, Nehemiah 3 the last few weeks, and in fact, we have one more week next week, and we'll close out our study on the gates of Jerusalem. Uh, This chapter is devoted to the rebuilding of the city walls and gates of Jerusalem. We've been looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, in light of our own building project because these books are devoted to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. We want to make sure we keep our priorities and our perspectives right as we go forward in our own building project. So particularly as it relates to the gates here in Nehemiah chapter 3, each gate is named, each gate served a purpose, 
and each purpose translates to a modern parallel, something that is important for us individually and collectively as a church today. As you've been with me through Nehemiah chapter 3, you'll remember that this is roughly the shape of the city of Jerusalem during the days of Nehemiah, and that there were, in fact, 10 gates that are each named in chapter 3. So far, we have looked at seven of those gates, starting with the sheep gate going counterclockwise. That's the direction they repaired all these gates. The sheep gate reminds us of Jesus the land that takes away the sins of the world. The fish gate reminds us of evangelism. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. The old gate was the place where the elders of the city would sit. It reminds us of truth. The valley gate reminds us of trials, the low points of our lives and how Jesus will lift us up. The dung gate to the south reminds us of sin, where all the garbage and trash was discarded, how we need to deal with sin in our own lives. The fountain gate, Jesus said, was like the Holy Spirit in the sense that the Holy Spirit will well up in us like rivers of living water. And then last week, the water gate reminds us of the Bible, Ephesians 5:26, where it talks about Jesus will cleanse us by the washing with water through the Word. Today, we come to gate number eight on the list, and it is, in fact, the horse gate. Some of you say, nay, yes. <laughs> The horse gate, number eight on our list. And there's only one verse devoted to the horse gate. It's verse 28. If you look at it with me in your Bibles, I'll read it. It says, Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. So that's the only reference in Nehemiah 3 to the horse gate. Not the only reference in the Bible, but that's the only reference in Nehemiah 3. The horse gate. There's a story about a guy who was a city slicker, lived in the city, but he decided to get a little, a little experience in the country, wanted to buy a horse. And so he went out to the country, found a farmer, found a farm, bought a horse from the farmer, got up on the horse, decided to try to, to ride the horse, and the horse wouldn't go. The rider was like, giddy up, and wouldn't move. The farmer said, son, the reason that horse isn't moving is because it's a born-again horse. It's a Christian horse. It loves Jesus. The only way you can get that horse to move is if you say, praise the Lord. You have to say, praise the Lord. Then that horse will move. The guy said, well, how do I get the horse to stop? He said, you say, amen. You say, amen. The horse will stop on a dime. You say, praise the Lord. That horse will take off like a jackrabbit. So he climbs up on the horse. He says, praise the Lord. That horse took off. That horse took off so fast. And then he realized they're coming to an edge of a cliff. And quickly, the rider then remembered, okay, amen, amen. So he's yelling, amen, amen. That horse stopped right at the edge of the cliff. That rider wiped his brow, looked up to heaven, said, praise the Lord. <laughs> so that's the horse joke for the day. Now for our study. Historically speaking, let's get the historical reference point for the horse gate, then we'll translate it. What's the modern parallel? What's the importance in our lives today? Historically, the horse gate was located close to the king's stables. There were actually stables there in the, in the city of Jerusalem. The king had uh, horses, and the purpose of the horse gate was for the men of Jerusalem to ride their horses in and out, going to and from war. So the horse gate was exclusively devoted to that entry or exit point related to war. That's what the horse gate is all about. It's about the cavalry. It's about war. And this was the gate that was used for that purpose. Warren Wearsby in his commentary said, 
The horse gate was adjacent to the temple area and became an important part of the nation's defense system. The horse gate reminds us that we must always be ready to do battle. Listen to that. He brought a modern parallel. The horse gate, the idea of war. Wearsby says it reminds us that we must always be ready to do battle. J. Vernon McGee in his commentary about the horse gate said, Now the horse was an animal ridden by a warrior. Men only rode horses during a time of war. The horse was the symbol of war. The horse gate speaks of the soldier's service of the believer today. I like that. And it translates to a modern parallel for us. Even you hear it reflected in the words of Wearsby and J. Vernon McGee. The horse gate paints a picture for us, and it's number 18 on our list, from Ezra through Nehemiah. The main points we're taking away from these books, uh, number 18 on the list, the horse gate reminds us of spiritual warfare, how we must be aware of an unseen battle that rages around us, resisting the devil and standing firm in the faith. There are many Bible references, and particularly I'm speaking of in the New Testament, related to the life of the Christian and the battles that we face. There are militaristic terms throughout the New Testament to communicate this principle. I'll give you a few examples. In 2 Timothy 2.3, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. In Philemon... Paul refers to his two Christian brothers, Epaphroditus and Archippus, as, quote, fellow soldiers for Christ. In 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul tells Timothy to, quote, fight the good fight of the faith. And even in his dying counsel, Paul's final words in 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7 about himself is this, quote, the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. Why is it that oftentimes through the New Testament there are these militaristic terms and the life of the Christian is paralleled to a battle that ensues and we as soldiers of Christ have to fight? The answer is because that's exactly the way it's to be seen, that we as Christians are in various battles and we have to be aware of the conflict and we have to fight accordingly. Now there are three primary battles that we as Christians will face in our lifetimes. Three primary battles. I'm going to mention all three, but I'm going to spend the majority of the time on the third battle. But the first battle for you note-takers is the battle of the flesh. The battle of the flesh. It's when we're fighting against sinful temptations that bombard us daily. See, everybody needs to understand this, friends. When you become a Christian, when you get saved, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, your spirit becomes regenerated or redeemed. All right, the real essence of who you are is your spirit. Your spirit is what lives on after your body dies, after you experience death. The Bible teaches that your spirit will separate from your body and go to be with the Lord. Paul says it like this, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So your spirit is the real essence of who you are, your mind, will, and emotions, your spirit and your soul intertwined, housed within a physical body. And your flesh, your body, is never regenerated when you get saved. And therefore, your flesh has instinctive appetites that are in conflict with the appetites and desires of your spirit. And the two, the Bible says, are at war with each other. That you are in a battle in and of yourself in that your spirit desires to please the Lord and live for the Lord. Your flesh desires to please itself and to live for yourself. 
And so there's this battle constantly between the desires of the flesh, the desires of the spirit. That's why in 1 Peter 2.11, listen to how Peter writes in militaristic terms. He says this, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. There is the battle of the flesh. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. We have to die to self daily. We have to recognize the battle is real and we have to crucify the flesh, die to self. That's why in Romans 8, 13, Paul says, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if you live by the spirit, if you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live in Galatians 2.20, Paul writes about this. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So many times through the Bible, we read about this battle of the flesh. We have to die to self. We have to realize that our spirit is in conflict with our flesh. That's one real battle. There's another real battle that we face as Christians, and that's the battle of the world. That's the battle where, whereby we are resisting the pull of this world, which is always trying to conform us to its image, its ways, its morals. It's everything. And before you become a Christian, there's not really a battle of, of the world because you're living in the world, doing what the world does. There's real no conflict. I mean, you're just living jolly well how you always live, doing what the world does and being a part of it, contributing to it. Then you get saved, you come to faith in Christ, you realize a different standard, different perspective, different uh, rules of morality. And so the culture then becomes in conflict in many ways with your standard and belief according to wanting to please God and what the Bible teaches. And so then, then the battle becomes not allowing the world to pull us back into its mindset, its culture, its ways, to stand apart, to be distinct and different, to be in the world but not of it to influence the world, but not let the world influence us. So it's this ongoing battle, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 4. Paul says it like this, For though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So he speaks about a spiritual life living in a physical world and being distinct in our own culture. That's why in Romans 12, 2, he warns us, be not conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be different, be distinct. That's a real battle. The battle of our flesh, the battle of the world. And then thirdly, the one that I want to focus on the most today is, is this spiritual battle, the battle of the devil, what we call spiritual warfare. And this is the battle that Paul says occurs in the heavenly realm where Satan and his demons are working to destroy our lives, our marriages, our families, and even our church. And it's a real war. Now, this topic takes balance, okay? Because whenever people start talking about spiritual warfare, you, you often will have two reactions. And both reactions are the extremes. You have some circles of the church that will dismiss spiritual warfare, that, that think the devil isn't even real. And so, you know, why bother with this whole, this whole concept that in the heavenly realms, unseen, in the spirit world, Satan and his demons are constantly at work to try to ruin your life. Some in the church dismiss it altogether. 
Others in the church have an inordinate preoccupation with it. And it's all about spiritual warfare this, spiritual warfare that, rebuking this, rebuking that, okay? Both of those are extremes. The Bible does teach the reality of it, but we need to be balanced on this subject. I don't want to come across spiritually spooky. I don't want this to sound mystical. But everybody here needs to understand that spiritual warfare is real. It is relentless. It is potentially destructive. And because it is unseen, it is the most dangerous. I can fight a battle when I see my enemy coming at me. But because we're talking about something that is in the unseen spirit realm, this can sound super mystical. Don't want it to come across that way. We need to understand it that it is real, it is relentless, and it is potentially one of the most destructive of all the battles because it is unseen. And I cringe to think how many lives, how many marriages, how many families, how many churches have been ruined or are under attack right now, potentially to be ruined, all because Satan behind the scenes or something demonic has been sowing seeds of discord and division and strife and lies and deception and all kinds of stuff into a situation to, de- to try to ruin it and destroy it. All the while, Satan is laughing, laughing at the fallout and laughing at how ill-equipped and unaware a lot of Christians are about how he works. So we're going to tackle this today. And we're going to examine this in light of Scripture because this is an important topic. Listen, when you think about the ways that the demonic realm and, and may, may work, don't be ignorant or deceived about this stuff. In fact, Paul even says one of the reasons why he says that he needed to forgive was so that Satan wouldn't take advantage of his unforgiveness and potentially then ruin a relationship. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 2, 10 to 11. He says, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. What does he mean by that? He means potentially if I keep unforgiveness in my heart, Satan will take advantage of that. And he'll continue to stir me with a bunch of unforgiveness and anxiety and bitterness and greed. And he says, I don't want to be unaware of Satan's schemes. This is how he works, even through unforgiveness. Paul had the same caution about unresolved anger as well. In Ephesians chapter 4, 26 and 27, Paul says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Why was he using that word, that language about the devil and a foothold and anger in the same, in the same sentence? Because what he's saying is, if you are angry, and not all anger is sin, that's for another Bible study, but if you're angry to the point where it's unresolved and it becomes sin, you go to bed without resolving that, you're going to go to bed angry, you're going to wake up angry, you're going to have the rest of the day angry, you're going to go to bed again that night angry, you're going to wake up the next day angry, and Satan just likes to keep that cycle going. And that's why he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You better resolve these things because Satan will take advantage. He'll get a foothold. It'll be a crack in the door into your life. Unforgiveness, anger, just a couple of examples that Paul says, these are opportunities potentially for Satan to come in and for things demonic, not to invade us physically, but on the outside to torment in the spirit realm, to discourage, divide, lie to us, destroy us. 
And Paul even takes a good section of Ephesians chapter 6 to deal with this subject head on. So I'm going to ask you now to go to Ephesians chapter 6. You can leave Nehemiah 3 and go to Ephesians chapter 6. And on your way there, let me give you some statistics on this topic because sadly, a lot of Christians don't even believe in what we're talking about today. According to a recent survey done a few years ago, published by the Barna Research Group on the topic of Satan and how real he is or not, the statement was given to Christians, all right? This was a survey of Christians, those who identified themselves as followers of Christ. The statement was, Satan is not a living being, but is a symbol of evil, all right? And so in the survey, it was asked of Christians, do you believe in this statement? Do you believe that Satan is not really a living being, but he's just a symbol of evil? Here are the results from the survey. 40% of Christians strongly agreed with the statement that Satan is not real, he's not a living being, he's just a symbol of evil. 19% of Christians somewhat agreed. All right, you take those top two numbers, 59% of Christians, according to this survey, either somewhat or strongly agreed that Satan is not a living being, he's only a symbol of evil. Let me tell you something, if you were part of that 59%, Satan is going to eat your lunch. If you think, it's not even really real, you're exactly playing into his hands. He loves for you to think that. He loves for you to dismiss the demonic things and think just superstition, Hollywood, not even real, okay? Again, don't get preoccupied with it, but you better not dismiss it because you'll fall prey to him if you do. If you're not on your guard, you don't understand how do we fight this, how do we deal with this reality, you will become prey to it. So recognize that Satan and demonic principalities, they are real, they are relentless, and they're going to try to destroy your life. They want to destroy your marriage, they want to destroy your kids. Why? Because you look like and, and love your Father in heaven. And Satan hates your Father in heaven. And so he wants to destroy everything about you. That's why Jesus called him a liar and the father of lies. That's why Jesus says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Satan, by the way, is not the opposite of God. God has no equal, all right, even in the opposite realm. Satan is defeated on the cross, but he still has limited power to test and to torment us. And we need to be aware of how he operates and not dismiss it all as a bunch of bunk or you will become a victim of spiritual warfare. We need to understand this. We need to get a biblical perspective of it. We need to understand how to fight it. Now, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 6. If you have your Bibles open there now to this section, verses 10 through 18, I'm going to read it. Verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, 
Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. That's all we have time for today on Cornerstone Connection. We're so glad you've taken the time out of your day to join us for a period of learning and encouragement for your life. If you were blessed by today's teaching, we'd encourage you to share it with someone you feel could use a little blessing as well. You can find and share this and many additional messages online at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can also subscribe to our podcast or take us with you on the go with our mobile app. Pastor Gary has also created companion resources that go along with some of the studies he's done. These are available on our website as well. Again, that address is cornerstoneconnection.cc. We at Cornerstone Connection believe that life is done better in community. Are you part of a local body of believers? For those of you in the Leesburg, Virginia area, we'd like to invite you to join us in person at Cornerstone Chapel. Come to our weekend services and find a warm group of people who would love to be your community. Weekend services are held Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. And we have a midweek gathering on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Thanks again for joining us today. We hope you'll come back next time as Pastor Gary continues through the book of Nehemiah on Cornerstone Connection. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.